Well, good morning. This morning, we finish up a three-part series through Ephesians 3, verses 1 through 13, where we're examining what was God's best-kept secret under the old covenant. And uh, I invite you to turn to Ephesians 3, uh, verse 1 in your Bible. And uh, this week, I was reading an interesting article about an island called Macquarie Island. Macquarie Island is located in a vast expanse uh, of uh, ocean between Australia and Antarctica, and it is so remote that nobody knew about its existence until 1810. At that time, the island's most notable inhabitants were penguins, several species of rare birds, and a huge population of elephant seals. Uh, The seals attracted the attention of hunters, and uh, the hunters um, inadvertently, when they would go hunting there and brought their ships and started using the island as a, a staging area and, and building buildings and other things on it, they inadvertently introduced rats to the island. And uh, the rat population took off, <clears throat> so they believed that it would be a good idea to introduce cats to keep the rats in check. Uh, and then, uh, and, and for a while, that seemed to be working, actually for a number of decades. That seemed like it was a good idea, it was working out. And as the trade around the island grew, they also believed that it might be good to introduce rabbits to the island so that the oiling crews who worked the island would have a readily available source of meat. The problem was that these animal invaders began wrecking havoc on the island's ecosystem. And the worst offender of all were the cats. They ate through the island's bird population with such remorseless efficiency that by the 1990s, conservationists realized they need to do something about the cats. So, uh, in 1990, the Australian government, which owns the island, started on a campaign to eradicate cats from the island, and they were successful by 2000, but the trouble the island had wasn't over. Because without their primary predator gone... The rabbits were free to do what rabbits do best, which is breed and eat. And uh, within a matter of years, they had eaten almost half of the island's vegetation. Uh, And so then the Australian government had to embark on another campaign to try to eradicate the island of the rabbits, Uh, but they realized also without the cats done, there were some rat sightings. So they just decided, all three, rabbits, cats, Uh, rats, all of them, Uh, they started on this campaign, and it cost the government millions and millions of dollars. Uh, But today, uh, Macquarie Island is uh, rat, cat, and rabbit free. And and the vegetation has been coming back like the conservationists wanted. In fact, I think it's a uh, it's like a, a national park. It's a uh, it's a nature reserve that the Australian government has. And uh, I bring up that story of Macquarie Island to illustrate the law of unintended consequences. Actions have consequences, and unfortunately, all of those consequences aren't always foreseen or understood or welcomed. Sometimes the cure is worse than the disease. There have been numerous governments and organizations and individuals down through history who have started out with good intentions, uh, with a noble goal in mind to do something only to have it backfire on them. Uh, many of our plans are accompanied by unintended consequences. That's just how it is uh, with human planning. But that's not true of God's plans. Uh, today we're going to learn about the outcome of God's best-kept 
Old Covenant secret being revealed, and we're going to see that the results of God's plan for history produce exactly what He intended. They are outstanding results for us, for our benefit, and today I want to unfold for you what those outcomes are. Let's read the text together one more time, uh, starting in Ephesians 3, verse 1. Paul says there, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to His holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of His power. To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things." so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which He carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in Him. Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are for your glory. This is God's Word to the church in Ephesus and also to us. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, You moved the Apostle Paul to pen these words for our benefit. Please come now and show us the amazing privilege we have of open access and freedom of speech before God the Father. Show us what this means, move our hearts with this privilege, and cause us to live in this boldness and confident access to the Father, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, for the last two weeks, we've been studying what I would consider, what I'm interpreting to be a digression on Paul's part. Uh, based on the way that God is bringing Jews and Gentiles together in the New Covenant Church, Paul breaks out into a prayer of praise in the middle of this letter to the Ephesians. But something he says as he transitions to pray about being a prisoner causes him, in my opinion, to stop and go down a digression to explain his ministry. And we're going to see the prayer he was about to pray starting in verse 14. But the concern on his part is that he's in prison. He's a prisoner for Christ. Uh, he's a prisoner in a Roman prison, but it's because of his ministry to the Gentiles for Christ. And I believe Paul thinks that this could discourage the Ephesians. And so, he gives… Uh, he, he tells them about the privilege his ministry is, because it's, it's precisely because of his ministry he's in prison, but he tells them what a privilege it is, and he asks them, based on that privilege he has, not to lose heart in his tribulations, because uh, the, his imprisonment is actually working out for their glory. And as Paul explains the privilege of his ministry, he describes it primarily as preaching and publicly disclosing, bringing to light something that was a mystery under the Old Covenant. Now, the English word mystery descends to us straight out of Greek from the very same word that Paul uses here in his letter to the Ephesians, uh, the Greek word mysterion. But the problem with that is that over time, the 
the way that we use the word mystery in English over the centuries, it has changed. What Paul is really talking about here is not a mystery that you could discover by human investigation, like a human investigation uh, dis, dis, uh, uh, figuring out a, a crime, a murder mystery. Really what he's talking about is a divine secret, a divine secret that only God knew that, wasn't impossible, that was impossible to discover by human investigation, uh, and something that God kept to Himself under the old covenant, but that He has now revealed. And as we've worked our way through the passage, we've worked our way through it, we, I've outlined it, by posing a number of questions to Paul that I believe he's answering in the text about this divine secret. The first question was uh, that we asked the text uh, is, to whom did God reveal this secret? And the short answer is, to the Apostle Paul and the rest of the New Testament apostles and prophets. But Paul tells us it wasn't just for their sake that he revealed this. He revealed it to them for the good of all. He revealed it to them for them to proclaim and preach to all people. Uh, and not only that, God intended to make this thing that was previously a secret made known to all people through the apostles. So, God has revealed it first to the apostles, yes, but now to all of us who have access to the New Testament. The second question is, when did God reveal this secret? And the short answer is, in the first century A.D., by sending His Son into the world. Uh, but then also, after the Father raised the Son from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places and sent the Holy Spirit in a fuller way into the world, after that happened, apostles chosen by Christ spread the message, they spread the word about this divine secret being revealed, about the Savior God had sent into the world, and the Holy Spirit caused their message to spread like wildfire throughout the Mediterranean world. And after years of planting churches and spreading the message, the Holy Spirit also moved the apostles to write letters to the churches, and, and uh, some of the New Testament prophets also wrote gospel accounts. And by the end of the first century, you have in the New Testament the revelation of what was a secret under the Old Covenant that's available for everyone to read. The third question is, well, what precisely is this secret? And Paul tells us in verse 4 that primarily the secret is a person, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Old Testament foretold of a Savior God would send into the world to deliver Israel and also to bring grace to the Gentile nations. There were hints and clues about who the Lord's Messiah would be and some of the things He would accomplish. But the secret of all He would accomplish, the secret of all, he, uh, all that He is and who He would be and what He would do, it was nowhere, no, uh, nowhere as fully known uh, as in the Old Testament as it is fully known now to us in the New. And so, the first answer to what is this secret, the secret really is a person, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. But there are also times in Paul's writings where he tells us in his letters that part of the secret is what Christ would do. And in verse 6, he tells us specifically the secret that he's referring to that drives his ministry is the secret of the church, that God would bring Jews and Gentiles together in this new covenant community of worship 
called the church. And when you think about that, when you think about what Paul's saying, and then you go do investigative work in the Old Testament, what you discover is this. In the Old Testament, there are over 300 prophecies about the Lord's Messiah, including references to the grace that He would bring Gentiles, but you will search in vain in the Old Testament to find any prophecies about the church. It, along with the fullness of what Messiah would do, was the best-kept secret of the Old Covenant. But how did God broadcast this secret? Well, He did so first by sending His Son into the world, and then again sending apostles to spread the Word, and then having the Holy Spirit move those apostles to pen gospel accounts and letters uh, that we can read. That's how God broadcast this secret. And then the fifth question we asked the text last week is, why did God reveal this secret? And Paul tells us in verse 11 that God had an eternal purpose, or literally translated, a plan for the ages. And God chose to make that plan known to us. And at the center of that plan is showing off His wisdom to angelic beings by exalting His Son. But He chose to exalt His Son in a marvelous way. He chose to do so by uh, showing off a community of new worshipers of God called the church. The church then becomes the theater in which God is putting His wisdom on display. So, the great secret of the Old Covenant is the way that God is now going to put on display His wisdom in the church. And this morning, we come to the last two verses of the passage, verses 12 and 13. I want to pose just one more question to Paul uh, that I believe will help us understand the text. And my question is this, what are the outcomes of God revealing this secret? What does this secret revealed then accomplish in the world? We'll look again at verses 12 and 13. Actually, we'll start in verse 11 for context. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which He carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in Him. Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are for your glory. My argument is that in these two verses, Paul either states or implies four outcomes of God now revealing this secret to the world. And the first outcome is that we have the privilege of free speech before God the Father. Now, the word, the word that we translate boldness in verse 12, it means to have confidence, but it's a very, very specific kind of confidence in the Greek language. This word for boldness was introduced into the Greek language by citizens of Athens who were arguing for free speech. They believed that the citizens of Athens should have the freedom to uh, question the government, uh, to publicly disagree with, and even criticize the government without facing reprisals from the governing authorities. Now, think about what that means for a moment. Most of the countries in Paul's day, most nations in Paul's day, were ruled by kings. And in many cases, the king's personal authority trumped the rule of law. What that meant was that the king could imprison you. He could take your property away. He could take your life away all unjustly. He could do all of this unjustly. He could do all of this against the stated laws of the kingdom and get away with it because his personal authority, in many cases, the authority of the king, allowed them to do that. And what that meant was this. When you came before the king then, and you had to speak with the king, 
you were very, very careful about what you said and how you said it, right? And when you came before the king, you were tempted to do what? To, to be dishonest, right? You were tempted to flatter the king. You were tempted to say what you thought the king wanted to hear because you didn't want to anger the king. Uh, and you see a little bit of that dynamic going on in the story that we all learned as children about the emperor's new clothes, right? Why, why is it that the lie of the emperor's new clothes persists so long? It would never work out that way with me. Everybody sure seems to feel free to tell me whatever they think negatively about my ensemble for the day. Uh, it worked. It went on so long with the emperor because he was king and everybody was afraid of angering the king, right? That's what we learned from the story of the emperor's new clothes. Well, that was the dynamic uh, back in Paul's day with kings and with government authorities. But in ancient times, there was always a few people around the king, uh, maybe some family members, some trusted confidants, maybe people who had proven their loyalty and worth to the king, maybe someone in the kingdom who was so independent, powerful, independent of the king that the king almost needed them as much as they needed the king. And those people in the king's presence had the freedom to speak freely. Now, they still spoke to the king with respect because he was king, but they could tell the king exactly what they were thinking. That's the New Testament picture of this word. Through the person of Christ, we have the privilege of speaking freely in prayer to the king who is over all human kings. And that's really important. And I think that may not seem to strike you as very important. You might be sitting in the pew thinking, well, yeah, duh. And that's because we're part of American evangelicalism, and we emphasize uh, how close God is, the nearness of God, that He cares for us, the imminence of uh, God. Uh, but the fact is this, remember, brothers and sisters, we have broken God's law. We have committed treason against the King, and the King who made us and sustains our lives, He can take our property away. He can imprison us. He has the authority to take our health away, to kill the body, and then afterwards to cast the soul in hell. But we don't have to fear the king and his reprisals because through the work of Christ, our treason has been forgiven and the king's anger has been taken away. So what does this freedom of speech look like practically then for us? Well, in the present, it means we have freedom of speech to God in prayer. We can speak to Him, we, we speak to Him respectfully because He's King, but we can speak to Him freely about our confusions and griefs and angers and sorrows. And we can do so freely without fear of reprisals because uh, the Lord Jesus Christ has taken away our sin. The author of Hebrews says it this way, let us draw near with boldness, and there's our word again, the exact same word in this text, let us draw near with free speech, with confidence, with boldness to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We can boldly, or you could also translate this confidently, that would have been another good translation, we can come confidently before God the Father, knowing that He loves us, He wants to hear us, that He's kindly disposed to us, which means… He's inclined to say yes to our requests unless there's a really good reason for Him to say no in His wisdom. But perhaps the most important thing we need to recognize practically about this freedom of speech we have with God in prayer is that this life is temporary, which makes these prayers 
temporary. In the future, this freedom of speech we have before God the Father will take on a completely different look and feel, because soon we will have the privilege of speaking freely in God's visible presence. The look and feel of this is explained to us by Jude this way, now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of His glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory. If you're in Christ, soon you will stand in the presence of God in all His visible glory, and you'll be able to stand before Him blameless. You'll be able to come before Him with free speech because you're blameless through Christ, and you will also stand before Him blameless with great joy. Notice joy in that passage in Jude I just read. That joy is our joy. That's our joy that we experience in God's presence in the future as we stand before Him blameless and with freedom of speech. And so, the first outcome of the revelation of God's secret is free speech for us Gentiles before God the Father. The second outcome of the revelation of God's secret is that we have the privilege of free access to God. Again, verse 12 says, uh, in Christ, we have boldness and confident access through faith. Uh, This is so important, right? Because in the human realm, in this life, you can have freedom of speech with someone who's a very powerful person, but it doesn't do you any good if you don't have any access to them. Uh, Before becoming a pastor here at Grace Fellowship Church, Uh, I was uh, the director of the Master of Arts and Biblical Counseling program at the Master's University. And Pastor John MacArthur, at that time, was the president of the university. And uh, uh, he knew me. I knew him. I was able to… I had occasion to speak with him a number of times. And though he has a very strong presence in the pulpit, uh, in private, I always found him to be uh, approachable, pastoral, uh, and a good listener. He he always took an interest in us and asked us questions and listened. Um, And even though I was an employee of the university, and he was the university's president, I never felt like there was going to be some kind of petty reprisal from him if I said something uh, negative, if I said the wrong thing. Uh, The way that he handled himself with me and also with other employees at the university, it gave me uh, uh, a sense of freedom of speech. The way that he handled himself gave the rest of us, it engendered freedom of speech. But just because I had freedom of speech with John MacArthur, it didn't mean I had a whole lot of access right? Because he, at that time, he was pastoring a church that had 9,000 members, and I wasn't a member of his church. He didn't owe me his attention because I was one of his church members. I wasn't. And when he was at the university, he didn't really owe me his attention because even though I was high enough up on the flow chart that he knew who I was and he knew me by name, I wasn't a vice president, and he spent most of his times when he was in meetings, he needed to meet with the vice presidents, the executive leadership team, uh, the cabinet, uh, uh, the men who were over each of the individual areas of the university. And so there were times where I was actually in the same room with John MacArthur. I could have easily gotten his attention, and because he's a gracious man, he would have given it to me but it would have been inappropriate for me to do so because he was there uh, not for 
my sake, but he was there because of a big event, perhaps a celebration for another employee. Maybe he was there because he really wanted to spend some time with the music department, and there was a reason I was in the room, but I'm not from the music department, and so I really need to, I really need to let him focus on them. There were times where I was welcome in the room, but it didn't mean that I really should take advantage of having access to John MacArthur. Uh, and Paul tells us here uh, that we have access to God the Father. Not only do we have access, we have confident access. Freedom of speech is great, but it won't do you any good if you don't have access. But Paul tells us we now have access to the Father. And the word he uses for confidence here is really important. Uh, the Greek idea is being fully assured. It means to have no uncertainty about what you're doing. The picture is of going to talk to someone powerful, and there's no doubt in your mind about it. You're not second-guessing whether or not this is a good time, or whether or not I should be uh, coming to them based on the ways I've wronged them in the past. You, you, you're fully assured that He's forgiven you, right? And so, you're coming into His presence, and you feel fully confident and assured in what you're doing. You're not second-guessing whether or not you should really be doing this, and whether or not this is a good, a good time. We know that we have unhindered access to God, and that when we speak to Him, we can speak freely in prayer. And that all happens through the work of Christ and also, verse 11 and 12, based on our faith in Him. So, we now have unhindered access and freedom of speech with God the Father. And then the third outcome of God revealing His greatest old covenant secret is that we have confidence that God has good purposes behind our trials. Look again at verse 13. Therefore, uh, based on the privilege of this ministry. I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are for your glory. Uh, Paul says, look, this is the ministry I have, and when you consider the ministry I have, don't lose heart. Don't get discouraged. I'm not a prisoner of the Roman Empire. I'm not a prisoner of the Jewish opponents who framed me. I am, verse 1 of chapter 3, a prisoner of Christ. This is all part of Christ's plan. If Christ didn't want me here, I wouldn't be here. He personally exercises authority over what His apostles do and where they go, and if He has me in prison, He has me here for a reason. This is all part of the plan. Christ has me in prison for a reason, and you can trust that it is uh, for the good. In fact, it's for your glory. Now, the question that that begs then is, but how? How is it for the glory of the Ephesians that Paul is in prison at this point? And when we try to answer that question, we don't have to practice or, or play some kind of theological uh, exercise game where we take our systematic theology and we take what we know is true about God and we try to apply it to the situation for good things God might be doing in it. We can just read the rest of the New Testament and you can find precisely how this was used by God for good in the life of the Ephesians. Uh, when Paul was in prison, he wrote this letter to the Ephesians, but it was during this exact same imprisonment that he wrote his letter to the church in Philippi. And he tells the Philippian church the good that God has brought about through his imprisonment. In chapter 1, verse 12 of Philippians, Paul says this, now, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Uh, 
so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the Word of God without fear. Even though Paul's circumstances looked like a setback, they were part of God's plan and God was working good through it. In other words, there were no unintended consequences. It wasn't that God deputized, it wasn't that the Lord Jesus Christ chose and deputized an apostle, and then as the apostle went about his ministry, it created some pushback from the culture, and then the apostle ended up in prison, and God was completely taken off guard. He had no idea, now how's he going to fix it? This is actually part of God's plan for the Apostle Paul. Paul looked at the trouble in his life and interpreted it through the lens of God's loving providence. Paul, again, was not a prisoner of Rome, according to his own testimony. He's not a prisoner because of his opponents. He is a prisoner of Christ. And he also interpreted his trouble through the good that it brought about in the advancement of the gospel. The Praetorian Guard was a company of 9,000 elite soldiers that he would have had zero access to if he hadn't been imprisoned. And the gospel, uh, it grew amongst those soldiers. There were also brothers and sisters in Rome who watched his situation and they learn to trust God more and speak out about the gospel with more courage. Through his imprisonment, good things happen. And so, even though Paul's imprisonment looked like a setback, God had a good purpose for it, and it actually enhanced the spread of the gospel, and it enhanced Paul's mission. This verse, verse 13 of Ephesians 3, and many other scriptures give us good reason to have confidence that God has good purposes behind our trials. So, the revelation of God's greatest Old Testament secret, it has marvelous outcomes for us. We have freedom of speech with God the Father and confident access to Him. Uh, and also, not only that, we can confidently believe that God has an eternal purpose for history that includes uh, good long-term purposes for the sufferings that we go through as individuals. But there's one more practical outcome of God revealing this great secret of Christ. Paul doesn't explicitly state it in these verses, uh, but I believe it's an implication we can't miss. If you look back at verses 10 and 11, you see that uh, the manifold wisdom of God is being made known through the church. His plan is connected to the church, and what that means is this. Uh, the church is our great responsibility and priority. That's, that's really, uh, I think, another implication here. Uh, the church is our responsibility and our priority. Remember, Paul made two sweeping assertions about the church in this passage. The first is that the church, along with Christ, is at the center of God's plan for the ages. But second, it's through the church that God is showing off His wisdom to angelic beings. So, the church is how God is putting His multifaceted wisdom on display, which makes the church kind of important, right? But when we come to Paul's prayer, uh, just later on, next passage in verse 20, I used it as our benediction last Sunday. We're going to hear Paul say this, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all we could ask or think, according to the power that works within us. To Him be glory 
in the church and in Christ Jesus. The church is connected to the center of God's plan for history, and it is the primary stage on the, in the world in which God is putting His glory on display. And with that in mind, I then want to ask you, brothers and sisters, how is your relationship to the church? In New Testament terms, your connection to a local church reveals the nature of your relationship with Christ. Does the church of the Lord Jesus Christ have its rightful place in your life? And if you want it to have the rightful place it should have in your life, if you want to be devoted to it, what would that look like? What would it look like to be dedicated to the church that Christ is building? Well, with the time that remains, allow me to give you some practical counsel on how to follow Jesus by loving the church that He loves. Uh, And I just have three points uh, really quickly by way of application. Point number one, realize that the church is at the center of God's plan for the ages and needs your help. Realize that the church is at the center of God's plan for the ages and needs your help. I've already talked about from verses 10 and 11, uh, the church in God's program and uh, how you can participate in it. And so, that's the first one. Just realize that the church is important. Number two, when it comes to being committed to the church, recognize what you're in for. Recognize what you're in for when you make the commitment. I say this because one of my biggest problems that I ran into before I became a pastor, uh, I ran into this in my 20s and early 30s when I was a member of churches and and in the pews and following Christ uh, as a younger man, the biggest thing that got me in trouble in my participation with the church was my expectations. I looked at the potential that the New Testament church has uh, and thought the church should be the one place where I can find people who love one another and will love me. Now, does the church have that potential? Yes, and amen, and one day it will be that loving place, uh, or loving community, I should say, perfectly. But what other factors does the New Testament tell us are also in play in the church? Well, the New Testament is very clear that the saints who make up the church are still sinners, and they're very capable of saying things that hurt. And the churches also uh, include some people who are self-deceived, which means they don't actually know Christ, and they're living for themselves, and they're going to live that way in the church. Uh, The New Testament tells us that Satan attacks the church from without and that false teachers infiltrate and destabilize the church from within. Uh, I mean, just think about it. As far as you can tell from your reading of the New Testament letters, what is your perception of the early church? Was it a place where everything went along swimmingly and everybody loved each other and there were no problems? Or was it a place that faced challenges. My reading of the New Testament is this when it comes to the church. The church in Corinth was a mess. It was divided. They were taking each other to court. They were abusing the Lord's Supper. Immorality was such a problem that Paul had to actually reason with the men in the church about why you can't follow Jesus and sleep with prostitutes. He wrote to the Galatians and basically said, I wasted my time with you guys. You're already following another gospel that I have to try to write a letter and save you from. The Apostle John had to write a a letter of counsel to Gaius about a man who uh, was very uh, gifted, dynamic in the pulpit, articulate speaker, magnetic personality named Diotrephes. 
but who was abusing his power, dominating the church, and abusing church discipline to discipline out of the church anybody who accepted the apostles and their teaching. Uh, And not only that, there were these false teachings that made their rounds through the churches. Uh, Some of the false teachings denied the true humanity of Jesus. Others denied His true deity. There was a false teaching making its way, circulating through the churches, that there is no resurrection from the dead, and not even Christ was raised. And then you get to the end of the New Testament, and in the book of Revelation, in chapter, uh, chapters 2 and 3, Jesus writes seven letters to the churches, and Jesus isn't even happy about what's going on in five of them. That's like way over half the churches. He's not even happy about what's going on in their communities. The fact is, the church at times, unfortunately, is a spiritual war zone. It's a battlefield. And here's where that problem came home for me. Uh, Brooke and I were members of a, a, a church that I had been a member of since college. We, we met, we dated, we got engaged, we got married, we had kids. Uh, in this church. I was a deacon, an adult Sunday school teacher. There was a couple of elders on the elder board that wanted to work on a plan to make me an elder, and uh, I was in the middle of all of that. And then the church had an absolute leadership meltdown and a church split. And I was so broken and angered by it that I wanted to be done with the church. I was contemplating how I could follow Jesus Uh, but apart from the local church, how maybe I could help build His kingdom through parachurch organizations like Christian schools, for example, but just sort of ignore the church. Now, what kept me from giving up on the church, uh, even in the middle of my pain, was two things. Uh, The first was that I knew that if I left the church, I could protect myself from people hurting me, but at the same time, I'd be turning my back on all the people who had loved me best, counseled me, helped me, asked me hard questions, challenged me when I needed to be challenged, I would be turning my back on all of that care, all of that good friendship, just to protect myself from being hurt again. And that just, that didn't seem wise to me. But even more than that functional consideration, I knew that Christ loved the church, and if I was going to follow Him, He wanted me to love the church as well. Now, that kept me in the ballgame, but if you could just picture counseling me, and this happened in my early 30s, I think, if you could just picture counseling me, praying for me, what was the biggest problem with me at that point? The problem with me was my expectations. Uh, What I was doing was looking at the potential for being a loving place that the church has, and I was expecting to experience that but I wasn't listening to the rest of the testimony of the New Testament about the kinds of problems the church faces in every generation. And I continued to read uh, my Bible through this crisis, and it was as if the Apostle John gave me a big hug and told me to stick in there and stay in the game. And then it was like the Apostle Paul took me aside very lovingly, very compassionately, and said to me, Chris, what did you expect? What were you expecting? You You've read the New Testament. You've read about all the problems the church had. What, how did you think this was? Did you think because it was an American church you were going to have less problems? That doesn't add up. Why would you think that the church in your generation would have less problems than the church in the first generation that had the apostles still with them? It doesn't add up. The church is going to face 
problems. The, the church has always faced problems from without and from within. And if you've been hurt in a church, I'm not making this up, I've been hurt by the church as well. But that doesn't cha- what doesn't change in the middle of our pain is that the church is still central to God's plan for history, and Christ loves the church. And so, I say this with as much compassion and empathy as possible. If you've been hurt by people in the church, you've identified the problem. You've identified the sin. You've identified the hypocrisy. You've identified the spiritual abuse. Now, don't abandon the church. Stick in there with us and try to be part of the solution to the problem rather than in yourself making the problem worse. Participate with us. Help. The Christ loves the church. And later on, we're going to get into Ephesians 5. I'm really looking forward to it. There's some really practical counsel for husbands and wives. But in that section where Paul talks about marriage, we find out that marriage, uh, one reason that God created marriage is because a good, healthy marriage puts on display the kind of love that Christ has for the church. And one of the implications we're going to learn when we get to Ephesians 5 is that uh, Christ loved the church. And so, if you're trying to follow Jesus, but not in a way that's invested in the local church and connected to a local church, what you're doing is like inviting a man who really loves his wife. His wife has some problems. She's a little bit of a troubled woman. Um, But this man really loves his wife. What you're doing if you're trying to follow Christ but not invest in the church is like inviting that husband over to your house, but when you give the invitation to him privately saying, look, I, I really enjoy your company, but your wife is kind of annoying, so could you just leave her at home when you come over for dinner? Like, like who does that? That's like, that's so offensive. Nobody would do this, especially if we knew he loved his wife, right? It's just, but that's what people are doing when they say they follow Jesus but won't participate with the church. Yes, the church has problems, but there's no false advertising about the church in the pages of the New Testament. The New Testament is very clear about the kinds of problems the church will face in every generation. So, as you approach your relationship with a local church, recognize what you're in for. I believe that if you will give yourself to a local church that the blessings will far, far outweigh the difficulties, but I'd be lying if I didn't tell you there will be some bumps along the way, and you need to have realistic expectations. And then number three, uh, just practical counsels here. Remember that Sunday morning starts Saturday night. Uh, the early church in Jerusalem, they could have, they were, they, it was primarily Jews at the very beginning, right, in the book of Acts in the very beginning, those Jewish believers could have very, very easily met on Saturday morning when all the other Jews were in the synagogue. Their whole weekly calendar in the Jewish community was set, uh, it, it revolved around the Jews taking Saturday off for worship. But at great inconvenience to themselves, they chose to worship on Sunday because that was the day of the week that Jesus rose from the grave. Now, In the Mosaic Law, you guys know this if you've read the Old Testament, there was an annual liturgical calendar that was communicated with feasts and festivals and other observances. In the New Testament, there is no annual liturgical calendar that's communicated to us, but there is a weekly liturgical calendar, and it only has one event on it. It has worshiping with God's people on Sunday. And so, as much as possible, as much as it depends on you, 
plan in your schedule to worship with God's people on Sunday. If you're stuck in a job where you have to work Sunday mornings, you have two options. You could either make it your long-term goal, just do your best, but make it your long-term goal to get the seniority or a change that you need in order to get Sunday mornings off. And maybe you're going to have to work towards that. Maybe that's a process that'll take six months or a year or 18 months or longer. But work towards making it your goal to secure Sunday mornings off. Or another thing you can do to work around it is you can... uh, go to a church that has a Sunday evening worship service. Now, I hate to say that because we don't have a Sunday evening worship service, but that's also an excellent and excellent option for you, that you can worship with God's people on Sunday night if you just can't get Sunday morning off. But try to set aside time on the Lord's Day. The early church renamed Sunday the Lord's Day because that was the day when they got together for worship. But either way, regardless of what you do, do your best regularly, regularly to worship with God's people on Sunday. And what that's going to mean is not just uh, making Sunday holy in your calendar, setting it apart. It also means preparing for Sunday morning on Saturday night by going to bed at a good hour. You can't stay up entertaining yourself with movies and watching sports and playing video games and then just pop out of bed with a refreshed body and an alert mind for a worship service on Sunday morning. It doesn't work that way. So put some preparation into it. Move that movie that you want to watch to another evening of the week. Let the kids know that in our house, bedtime is actually a little bit earlier on Saturday nights because we want to be we want to get a good night's sleep before we go worship with God's people. Maybe lay out the clothes that you plan to wear the night before so you don't have to make that uh, decision the mor- that morning. Uh, do what you have to do. Practice good sleep hygiene, but make Sunday morning important in your calendar by prepping for it Saturday night. Well, there's uh, a lot more that I could say here about volunteering to serve in a local church, uh, participating in ministries outside of just the Sunday morning worship service. I could give a whole sermon on how being a member of a church is a church office with privileges and responsibilities, just like being an elder or a deacon, Uh, but I I won't do that now because we're running out of time. Uh, But for now, uh, realize that the church is the center of God's plan for history and needs your participation. Recognize what you're in for when you commit to it, and remember that Sunday morning starts Saturday night. Let's pray.